The following program is brought to you by Taste Bud Entertainment. Welcome to two hours of delicious conversation with Chef Jamie Gwynn. Dish with celebrity chefs, cookbook authors, and food experts, and gain inspirational ideas. You'll learn kitchen wisdom, wine education, and culinary trends, and eat and drink like you've never done before. Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwynn starts now. Good morning, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio along with Lana. Another delicious Sunday morning to you. This show brings you fresh ingredients and recipes and kitchen wisdom from celebrity chefs, authors, and culinary experts. And we hope you'll meet us here and join us at the table every Sunday morning for two hours of delicious conversation and fabulous food. You made the right choice, and you should know that we're always serving up seconds at chefjamie.com. This is where those who are flavor-obsessed meet on Sunday mornings. You're flavor-obsessed too, aren't you, Mom? Good morning, Lana. Good morning. (laughs) We're delighted that you've joined us. We're going to kick off this morning with our technique of the week. Learning basic culinary techniques is fundamental for professional cooks and essential, I believe, for home cooks to strive to better their cooking skills. So every week, we share a new technique. As I mentioned on my Facebook page at Chef Jamie Gwen, my chicken will always be juicier than your chicken because last week, we reviewed the topic of how to brine and with July 4th grilling coming up your chicken and your pork will never be the same if it doesn't swim in that salt water solution well you'll find the techniques at chefjamie.com and just above how to brine is a suggestion for making the ultimate mayonnaise aioli the classic preparation a mayonnaise base with roasted garlic infused into each creamy heavenly bite comes from two main ingredients, ali, meaning garlic, and oli, meaning olive oil, in the Languedoc, the ancient dialect of southern France. So this is a very classical preparation and considered one of the mother sauces when it comes to classical French cooking. Now, I think you should think of aioli as your secret sauce. Mom, you and I have spent a time in um, Bruges, in Brussels, eating moule frites, and they mm-hmm. wouldn't dare bring a bottle of ketchup to the table with your frites or French fries, but they will gladly bring you a bowl <laughs> with which to bathe in of homemade mayonnaise, and there's nothing better than that. Mm. The secret to creating mayonnaise is definitely a food processor, and it's all about the emulsion. The technique is really less scientific than you think, There are a couple of tricks and tips. It's very simple, though. It is possible that the mayonnaise might break. It is an emulsion, and the yolks are suspended in the oil. So the most important thing you have to remember here is slow, thin drizzle, right? The slower, the thinner, the drizzle of oil will keep the mixture from breaking. And you're going to master mayonnaise in just a couple of tries, if not already. It's the addition of the roasted garlic or raw garlic that actually brings it to aioli. Now, aioli, the Finnish sauce, is delicious over asparagus. I think it's amazing with boiled potatoes, French fries, tomatoes. But no matter what you pair with it, the sauce is the star. So this is how you do it. You start with roasted garlic, preferably. I like to roast my own by cutting off a third of the top of the bulb itself gets cut off with preferably a serrated knife, drizzled with olive oil, salt, pepper, and put in a foil packet to roast. 
at 325 degrees. I like low and slow for about an hour. You do yours, Lana, individual garlic cloves mm-hmm. already peeled. I buy the Melissa's package. Yeah, and because it, it's super simple. They're wonderful. Just I, open up the little packages and yeah. put it into foil. And it's called garlic convenience. It's wonderful. Right? An hour later and your house smells so divine. And I find those don't even take an hour. Those actually mm-hmm. go less time because mm-hmm. they're already peeled and individual. But you have to shake the packet every once in a while to make sure that they don't brown too much in one place. So you've got this gorgeous roasted garlic, which by the way, you could uh, fake it, don't make it, and buy roasted garlic at Bristol Farms mm-hmm. in a container in the deli section. You place the roasted garlic or the fresh garlic with the egg yolks and salt and pepper in the food processor and you blend it all together and then with the processor running I like a combination of equal parts grapeseed oil and olive oil the grapeseed oil is flavor neutral the olive oil adds viscosity and as the processor runs you get this thick creamy luscious garlicky mayonnaise and then you finish it with the juice of a lemon so you bring out that bright acidity you adjust the salt and pepper or the seasonings as you like it a touch of cayenne works well here too and you can store it in the refrigerator for up to a couple of weeks and you have the ultimate sauce now you can shortcut an aioli very simply by using store-bought mayonnaise and infusing using any flavor you like. For my uh, turkey burgers off the grill, Mm -hmm. I mix together store-bought mayo, a tablespoon of crushed pineapple, and a tablespoon Mm. of pineapple juice. And it's a nice fruity aioli Mm. that goes over that turkey burger or Mm -hmm. with chicken. It's really delicious. I love the pineapple idea. You could infuse jalapenos. You could add just about anything, chili powder. If you added vinegar to it and a little bit more oil, you have a creamy salad dressing. It's the base for so many things. And I'm actually just testing an aioli. Um, Lana, you've tasted it once, but we have more to work on. Um, And it's bacon-based because everything is better than bacon. Always. And it's uh, using bacon grease or bacon fat. Now, it does set up essentially or congeal. So we're working through that. But that is the next stage in aioli. Master this one. You'll find it at chefjamie.com and there'll be more delicious dishes in your future. Mm. Guaranteed. It's luscious. It it really is. And it's great with grilled food. Did you know 90% of grillers will actually grill for the 4th of July? I think that's an incredible number if you consider U.S. standards and statistics. 77% of the entire population of the U.S. owns a barbecue. And we think that all around the world, people cook over open fires. And here we find every excuse, of course, to do so. It's how cooking began. It has stood the test of time. Uh, It's today's favorite way to cook. And it's all about great food fun, and fabulous flavor. So if you're planning your July 4th barbecue now, allow us to inspire you with a few ideas. When it comes to decoration and presentation, we like themed parties, Lana and I. Mm -hmm. So maybe you're going beachy by filling colorful buckets with sand and sunflowers. Maybe you're going starfish tied to napkin rings for that beachy Mm -hmm. feel. You could go all red, white, and blue and just fill the table with buckets of fresh strawberries Mm. all strewn throughout, you know, down the middle. And then you bring out bowls of sour cream and brown sugar Mm -hmm. for dessert. Um, And then when it comes to the bar, remember that the bar should always be set up separate from your buffet. Let's talk about things on the grill. Okay. So uh, grillers consider dessert, fish, and pizza the most challenging things to grill. Mm. I'm going to beg to differ on the pizza portion of that conversation because 
Pizza is one of the easiest things, I think, to master and one of the most delicious off the grill. You can buy store-bought pizza dough Mm -hmm. at your local Bristol Farms store. They sell it in a bag. Or your local pizza joint. Right. You have a favorite pizza joint. That's a great Mm -hmm. idea. You go in and ask them to buy dough. Shouldn't Mm -hmm. cost you more than a buck. And stretch it out. You can do squares. You could do rustic. You can try the twirl and make them round. But you can actually stretch the dough in advance. Brush it with olive oil straight on the grill. Great grill. Bill Marks, fabulous flavor, and then you create your pizza. Recipes posted on the website. I think the scariest part is laying it on the grill. I agree. And not getting a hole in it. That's true. You have one of those bendable cutting boards. Um, Melissa's gives them away, in fact. If you can cornmeal or flour your bendable cutting board and put your pizza crust on top, it should be movable. Mm. Carry it out to the barbecue and just slide it right off and you have the best chance of keeping that crust intact. Oh, I will do that. What about corn on the grill? They say that's oh, griller's favorite. It's the best. I agree. And there's nothing like char on corn. Oh, because you could burn it and, <laughs> and no true. one will complain. It's true because it, it still just, tastes good, right? It tastes great. Uh, fresh stone fruit. Beautiful right now. Grab some peach halves. If you're uh, creating a dessert for adults, a glaze of bourbon and butter and brown sugar on mm-hmm. those grilled peach halves, a streusel on top, and you've got a peach melba. Mm. Or for the kids, you could use apple juice or pineapple juice, but there's nothing better than grilled fruit at the height of the season. Here's our best tip for adding flavor. Use a bunch of fresh herbs, whether you've grown them or purchased them, as your basting brush every time you go out to the barbecue, starting with your July 4th extravaganza. A bunch of cilantro, a bunch of thyme, a bunch of rosemary tied together with butcher's twine and dipped into butter creates that herbaceous flavor when you brush it on ears of corn on the grill. And on a steak at the end? Oh, yes. Or on grilled lobster tails. No more brushes. We're all about Mm -hmm. herbs this year and really Mm -hmm. creating that terrific flavor. And also, we love our spiced grilled sweet potatoes. Oh, yes, we do. They're wonderful. Just uh, microwave the potatoes first. Pre-cooking is the key. Cut them in half. Lay them on the grill. Great-looking grill marks go on those. Get on those sweet potatoes Mm -hmm. and then put together a rub of some chipotle powder, cinnamon, paprika, cumin, Mm. add a little olive oil, touch of apple cider vinegar and brush the sweet potatoes with that and they are divine. Food is life. Create and savor yours. Coming up, don't touch your dial. Chef Josh Henderson joins us this hour live from his Airstream food truck in Seattle, Washington. Also, Jamie Jensen, the author of Road Trip USA, is taking us away and you're going to hear a killer recipe from Chef Greg Daniel of Haven Gastro Pub for his cola braised pork shoulder. Then stay with us in the nine o'clock hour. Lisa Lillian, hungry girl with her best summer snacks. You'll also hear from Patricia Wells live from Paris, revealing her food lover's guide to Paris app. And we're going to talk about the history and the virtues of Zinfandel. Wine lovers rejoice. John Kane, Rosenblum winery winemaker, will be with us. Chef Jamie Gwen, along with Lana in your radio, you're listening to K. AFWB News Talk 980. Just keep chugging on. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio along with Lana. I love this show. I do. And just because I'm, I'm the host doesn't mean 
that I can't fall in love with fabulous food just like you. We have never done a live interview from a food truck before. So mark my word, this is a first. No other trend has parked itself at the forefront of the culinary world quite like food trucks. Part of a new generation of chefs that are really taking meals on wheels. And I am delighted to introduce you to Chef Josh Henderson. He and I are both graduates of the CIA, and he created Skillet Street Food in Seattle. And it is a prototype for the national street food movement that has swept the country. He is talking to us live from his vintage Airstream trailer, and we love it, Josh. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, pleasure. Congratulations to you. You know, I remember graduating the CIA a little bit before you, and we'll leave it at that. And I, too, had a similar sentiment. And in reading about your background, I know that you spent time in kitchens like I did, but really wanted to break out, break away, and find what aspect of the food world you loved. And so you decided to take it to the streets. Yeah, I mean, you know, the hardest part in, in, you know, figuring out what you want to do as far as when it comes to food, at least for me, was not figuring out now what I wanted to do, but how I wanted to do it. And, you know, it took me a while to sort of bumble around and fail a lot and finally was able to realize that my talents needed to be sort of in a little bit more of a chaotic and gypsy-like atmosphere. And where I own Skillet, I had the opportunity to travel around with photographers and cook for photographer crews around the country for about two to three years, and, and that was a great sort of experience in doing mobile food, and, and that sort of transported me to the 2007 when I started Skillet Street Food. And it's really just a, another way to see the world. Tell us about what you think inspires the food truck movement, because food truck operators talk with other food truck operators that drive by and park in the same place, and where do you think we've come from and where are we going with this concept of a movable feast? Well, I think that where we came from was an environment where there wasn't a lot of creativity, where there wasn't a lot of uh, young entrepreneurs that were trying to explore their craft. And uh, where we're at now, hopefully, is, is you know a real sort of burgeoning uh, group of young chefs that are out there wanting to sort of showcase what they do and, and get immediate feedback. The, the barrier to entry to starting a truck is, is definitely, from a financial standpoint, much lower than it is to starting a restaurant, right. and you have the opportunity to kind of just showcase what you do on a daily basis and get uh, get that feedback, which is crucial to what you do as a, as a chef, uh, right then and there, very immediate. It is. It's definitely immediate gratification. I know it is when I step up into the line of a food truck. Tell us, what is cooking in your kitchen, your mobile kitchen, today? Today, we've got uh, a recipe that you can find at canolainfo.org. And that is a recipe for poutine. And poutine is one of those recipes that uh, we do. We've been doing it since 2007 when we first started. And it's a classic French-Canadian dish that is basically on gravy and cheddar cheese fries. Oh, Um, yeah, baby. Ours is a little different in that we use uh, cheddar cheese and Parmesan instead of the classic sort of cheese curds. And and we lighten ours up, up, up a little bit by using canola oil instead of beef fat to to start our roux for the gravy. But nice. that's uh, one of the recipes that's showcased along with about seven others at canolainfo.org and showcases really the versatility of canola, and canola oil, but also the versatility of, of what you're finding in street food these days around the country. Very cool. Are you Canadian, Josh, by heritage? 
I am most definitely not Canadian. Ah, I am, uh, you I are am not. American. A good, a, a good American boy. But interestingly enough, we've seen poutine spread across the U.S. And I love the influence from other parts of the world, um, from our neighbors in Canada. And there are many great chefs who have taken poutine and created their own signature dish. And that's what you've done. And again, you take a playful spin on the Quebec favorite and you douse French fries in the best gravy you've ever had and then top it with cheese. And it's really a recipe that you could make dependent upon what's in your cheese drawer. You know, you could use up the rest of the wedges of cheeses and create your own flavor profile. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we we take it so many different directions. I mean, you can go, you know, any kind of country in the world, you could take it in that direction. I mean, you could top it with kind of a a pulled pork with tortilla cheese and cilantro and, you know, tapatio sauce. You could go... Vietnam with some pickled cucumbers and maybe some lemongrass and some prawns. I mean, there's so many different ways to make poutine that, uh, you know, it's, you know, the Quebecois folks would not be saying that it's poutine anymore, but uh, I, I would I would say that it's sort of our American version of poutine. Yeah, I'm with you. I'll back you up on that one. Tell Thanks. us uh, <laughs> tell us what your other hottest selling items are off the truck so that we can plan our next trip to Seattle. When we started out, it was the key was to have the best burger in the city. And it was, uh, you know, one thing that we uh, did was we, we started out with grass-fed beef. We put this concoction that we came up with called bacon jam. We put that on there. We put blue cheese. We put arugula. And it all goes on a toasted brioche roll. And a lot of times people will combo that with some poutine. And that's a oh meal that uh, makes you head straight for a nap right afterwards. I but was going to uh, say, that, that sounds like the necessity for a nap. What do you think is the next stage or step in food trucks? Where are you going to take your skillet concept? Well, I think that you're going to find more and more chefs that start out doing food trucks and getting some sort of notoriety and success to a degree are going to move to using that as a transition into brick and mortars. It's a great sort of, I guess, runway to have success. I mean, we were able to open a diner last year and, and another one this year as well where we're opening to people already knowing about it. We have tens of thousands of fans on Facebook and Twitter, and, and all those people talk, and, and that creates a fan base. So I think that's the next step. It's, just, it's almost like in baseball. You start out with the farm system, and, and you move to the major leagues. And if you can succeed in doing street food, you'll for sure be able to succeed in doing restaurants because street food is inherently harder than doing restaurants. It's just that you've got moving pieces, and you've got weather, and you've got all kinds of stuff that kind of hits you on a day-to-day basis. Right. You can always find in a restaurant. Well, congratulations on your restaurants. We hope to see more pop-ups from the creations of the brainstorming ideas of chefs on the street like yourself. I just yeah. went to the website that you mentioned, canolainfo.org. You can find Josh Henderson's poutine recipe, and you'll want to add it to your collection and try it out. It will make you a culinary hero. That's just the kind of recipe that everybody loves. But there's a hazelnut balsamic vinaigrette that you make for a kale salad. And Lana, wouldn't that be beautiful? Toasted hazelnuts, dried cranberries, blue cheese crumbles. I see that for dinner tonight. Kale is uh, one of my favorite sort of go-to vegetables recently. Me too. We have a a fried chicken sandwich that we put it on with a little bit of charred jalapeno aioli and it's uh, this kale salad is just so incredibly healthy, and it's got such a, a nutty flavor compared to you know normal just uh, normal lettuce. But it's uh, it's a great recipe. Yeah, I enjoy it quite a bit. Well, we look forward to trying it. Thank you for sharing your cuisine on four wheels. He is 
Chef Josh Henderson. And when you find yourself in Seattle, look for his Airstream. You will find his skillet restaurants along with his food truck uh, where all fabulous foodies dine. And we will go to canolainfo.org and grab your recipes. And we hope to catch you uh, roaming around again soon, Chef. Can't wait. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. The delicious conversation continues after this. We're rolling out and rolling back. I love the food truck concept. You're listening to KFWB News Talk 980. Don't go away. On the road again. Going places that I've never been. Cooking tips, ideas, and road trip inspiration to make every day more delicious. Chef Jamie Gwen along with Lana in your radio. I remember as a child going on road trips with my mom, who is Lana, as everyone knows, and loving the concerts we stumbled upon, mom, the food experiences, and the conversations that transpired during our travels. And while the American landscape has evolved over the years, there's much more on-the-road technology than ever before, road tripping is still a favorite pastime. There is a newly published sixth edition of Road Trip USA Cross-Country Adventures on America's two-lane highways that has just just released, and Jamie Jensen is here to share the all-American experiences with other road warriors. We're glad to have you, and I love another Jamie. Hey, no, very nice to be with you. <laughs> and glad to have you as well. Congratulations. The sixth edition is pretty fabulous. Tell us your story about how you got started road tripping. Well, I think I'm an L.A. boy myself and grew up basically driving around L.A. looking for ice cream stands and <laughs> tail of the pub hot dogs and old tiny nailers in Hollywood was always our Sunday night oh. destination, the wonderful old drive-in that I think is no yes. longer there. No, it isn't. <laughs> yeah, except in our memories, but uh-huh. um, the thing is, when you get away from Los Angeles, places like that are still alive and well, and so you may have to go a bit further than we used to, but uh, you can still experience that kind of ultimate roadside Americana and get a good, good cheeseburger or root beer float, whatever floats your, your boat. I love your love of diners, and we'll get to those, but you cover everything from Boston to the Oregon Trail, New York, North Carolina. You've covered more than 35,000 miles, I know, Jamie, and there are 125 detailed driving maps, a slew of full-color photos in the book. What is your favorite trip, though, right now, of the 11 featured trips that you share in the book? My favorite, my I think the greatest drive in the nation is that Big Sur cruise down Highway 1. Mm, it, I can't imagine you know anything better than that somehow. And it's not just that I you know, love it and I'm a Californian, so I'm you know, all in favor of it. But it, it just is remarkable. I've done it every year for you know 30 years. And every time I just think, wow, this is amazing. And there's great food. There's great views. There's hikes. There's swimming, if you're brave, out in the uh, <laughs> wild Pacific. And it's just got a little bit of something for everybody. I have to agree. I think it's one of the most beautiful places from behind a car window. Mm-hmm. Unless, of course, you you know put the window down and breathe the ocean air to really experience. Because the entire coast is gorgeous on that stretch. Mm-hmm. What have you learned and what does road tripping teach kids and adults alike about America? You have two young sons, I believe, and I wonder what it's like to road trip with your family now. Well, yeah, they're, they're 13, so they're not as young as they used to be. <laughs> but it's, it's exciting. And the nice thing about you know, traveling, especially on the smaller roads that I tend to uh, prefer to get on, I mean, I-5 is like, unless I desperately have to be 600 miles away in eight hours, I really try to avoid freeways like that. But the older roads, you know, 101, the old El Camino Real, you can pull off 
and visit the missions. You can see where John Steinbeck wrote about East of Eden. There's these things that you can do, and you can have these experiences while making your way to a destination that really, you know, bring the state back to life. And mm. it's wonderful to be able to do that. And cars are fantastic at letting you have these experiences on your own time, on your own schedule, and get on and do something else. And you, they all add up to a really, you know, wonderful memory. It sure does. One of the uh, one of my favorite places is upstate New York. I think New York State is a beautiful place. That it is, and it I'm is. a graduate. The Finger Lakes, the Adirondacks. Yes. There's so much everywhere you go, and you know, even places that aren't national parks and internationally famous, you still find something that's like really remarkable about them. And the nice thing about the places that are a little bit less famous is they tend to have uh, fewer people. You don't have to wait in line so much or right. pay such a high price to get in. And, and that's another great thing about road trips is that you can really experience all these places and do it without having to buy a, a very expensive ticket. Now tell me, Jamie, if you would, your best finds, because I graduated the CIA, the Culinary Institute of America in upstate New York. I spent a lot of time at the Roosevelt Mansion, quite a beautiful place, and, you know, upstate even further, above Poughkeepsie. You have incredible food finds, too. Um, There are great farms and artisan dairies. What is your best route? Take us on a road trip in your car through upstate New York and name a couple places, if you would. Oh gosh, the the place one of the places I first really fell in love with the the open road was a a town uh, outside Albany called Troy, New York, which is kind of a working class old mill town. It was it's used for what New York looked like in 1890s. They filmed Age of Innocence there. I think it was Marty Scorsese. Mm-hmm. You know, and they didn't have to change a thing. You know, and it's, it, this place and the wonderful thing there, food wise, is they've got these kind of blue collar luncheonettes where you can go and get, you know, chili dogs and things like that. I tend to be at the lower end of the food spectrum somehow. You know, I can appreciate the Chez Panisse and the uh, whatever Wolfgang Puck can throw out. But I also really like, you know, a nice taco truck some days. And that tends to be more what I cover in Road Trip USA is the local food where people could afford to eat every day rather than for the special occasions. And for those of us traveling through, to eat there really can become a special occasion. And, and that's the nice thing that I really try to spread about Road Trip USA is that there are great places to eat all over the country and some of them have appeared on you know guy fieri's tv shows but most of them haven't and most of them are, are still fantastic mm. jamie i'm in your website roadtripusa.com and i love that you could click on a route and you come up with all of the uh, historical monuments to visit as well as food and so on it's really cool i have to agree it, it? to plan your trip this way give us some planning ideas or suggestions, Jamie, if we're setting out this summer to, you know, cross country or find a particular destination that we want to visit, where should we start? Well, can I start by saying the, the RoadTripUSA.com site, it was really fun when we put it together, but it was six years ago now, and it hasn't been brought up to date, unlike the book, which has been through a couple of editions since then. And the book is, is, is fresh last week, whatever, so if people can check out the website and get a sense of the coverage, but then... But you must buy the book. I say, yes. Yeah, well, I'm not saying it a hard sell. No, like I'm that, saying it. I get a, it. A <laughs> yeah. No, but the, the book keeps me on the road. I think I get a gallon of gas for every book sold, something like that, the way gas prices are. I wish I did, actually, the way gas prices keep going. But road trip travel planning, I think, you know, start thinking about what it is you like to do with your time. And then, you know, if you have to, you, know, you want to go visit some family member or friend somewhere, think about things you like to do and then decide 
where you can find along the way to do them. I, I happen to be a big fan of minor league baseball, and so that's usually a theme for me to go and check out what teams are where. And summertime is great for that. You go to a minor league baseball game, you go to a drive-in movie, something like that. If you do like the history, I've got tons and tons of historic sites in here. So there's a little bit of everything along the way in the book and on the website that will kind of clue you into all the wonderful things you can experience once you get off the freeway and start taking these slower roads. Right. And you just have to know that they're there to perk your interest enough to go and uh, experience them and to take that right turn. Take us back to California with just a couple of minutes left here, Jamie. This is our neck of the woods in your old stomping ground in Big Basin Redwood State Park. You talk about this incredible haunt for kite surfers. But just above that on the page, there is a strawberry farm, one of the last that you say where you can pick your own. The Swanton Berry Farm Yes, it's a fantastic little spot. And they will, if you don't have time to pick your own, they will bake you a pie that they've, and they're fantastic. It's just north of Santa Cruz, California, which is one of the, I think it's the last great beachfront amusement park. There's no more Pike and POP, but there's still Santa Cruz. And they've got the giant dipper roller coaster and a wonderful old loose carousel that is one of those carved wooden, you know, 1890s era. Just a wonderful historic artifact that you know you only pay to hop on the horses. You can explore and experience it all with no admission fee, and it's you know right on the beach where people are you know surfing in the waters offshore and playing volleyball or soccer on the mm-hmm. sands. And what I think California has lost in a lot of ways, and it's still alive and well up there. Plus, they've got berry farms and you know picturesque uh, lighthouse youth hostels up north of there, which is a you know once in a lifetime experience. There's a hot tub in this youth hostel where the waves come crashing in and the light shines from wow. the... It was in a UPS ad some years ago, but it's just one of the interesting... California is a pretty special place, and I try and fill the whole book with experiences like that, but that's definitely a peak. Well, you've certainly done it. There's a wonderful feature as well, if you don't want to venture far, about what you call the southwestern corner of the country, San Diego. And Jamie has highlighted an entire itinerary where you can experience from Del Mar to Torrey Pines all the way through, find a great taqueria, understand the Prado. I mean, really fabulous places all along the California coast. So whether you're planning a short one tank of gas excursion, I love that you call it that, or a journey across the entire USA. The new book in its sixth edition updated just last week, as Jamie Jensen said, a really cool book, a thick manual that we know great travelers are carrying with them on their destination road trips is available now. It's called Road Trip USA, Cross-Country Adventures on America's Two-Lane Highways, written by Jamie Jensen. Jamie, it was a pleasure. We hope to see you on the road soon. I hope so, too. Thank you very much. (laughs) Happy travels. As the delicious conversation continues, Chef Jamie Gwen along with Lana, you wouldn't dare touch your dial now, would you? Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen, along with Lana in your radio. Culinary experts, visionaries, tips, tricks, and techniques are shared here. So you should stick around. You just might learn something. Executive Chef Greg Daniels loves pork. It's one of the things I love most about him. The menu at Haven Gastro Pub and Brewery in Old Town Orange and Pasadena features more pork dishes than any other meat. And in fact, with advance notice, you can even order a whole roasted pig with three sides for dinner. 
bring it on. But for now, we're here to braise. Greg makes this killer cola-glazed pork shoulder. And so we begged him, well, we asked him and then we begged a little, to share his recipe and his method. And we're delighted that you agreed. The executive chef and partner of Haven Gastro Pub, Old Town Orange and Pasadena is here and in your radio. Good morning, Greg. Good morning, Jamie. How are you? I'm doing great. And you? Fantastic. Okay, now Lana and I salivate over a lot of things, Greg, and we've been known to cook on the radio many a week, but it's seldom that I drool on a piece of paper with a recipe, but just (laughs) reading the cola-glazed pork shoulder that I watched you make brings back the memory of it. By the way, we wouldn't dare share it without giving the recipe to you. It's posted at chefjamie.com. You'll find it there. Talk to us about a braising pork shoulder and what we should look for when we're buying the cut. Sure. Well, pork shoulder, it's a very versatile meat, but it, uh, it's, it is notoriously tough. So it needs a long, long cooking time, and it takes very well to braising. Uh, the fat content in it distributes really well into the braising liquid and, and throughout, the, throughout the meat. So mm-hmm. uh, you, can, you can get it as uh, pork shoulder, pork butt, Boston butt, uh, all all those cuts are pretty much the same thing and are are used interchangeably. So um, we we start off with Berkshire pork, which uh, we think is a great just a great heritage breed. Uh, but you can use you can use any kind that you like. And uh, we we started off with the dry rub, which uh, this dry rub we threw together just recently. And uh, I I dare I say it's the it's one of the most exciting things that I came up with. And it's not. It's not that it's. Uh, it's. It's not that it's mind blowing, but the flavors. The flavors and the aroma are are really really nice. And um, I, I think it is a little really mind blowing. Yeah, I, I think you, that with all humility, you should toot your own horn and say that you said to me you stumbled across this and sort of made it up as you went, and you were too immensely impressed by the flavor profile of the finished product and. It is. I tasted the rub straight when I was learning to make the oh, dish from Greg. I love the coffee in it. Yes, it is this depth of flavor. Well, espresso, shall I say. Yes, that comes about in the nose, on the palate, and then as you're cooking the dish that wafts through your house, this is like perfume to bring your neighbors over. <laughs> this is, it's really that good. So talk us through the rub, Chef. Yeah, the aroma, the aroma is amazing. Oh. So we, we start off with, uh, with, ground coffee, kosher salt, and sugar in equal parts. And we started off with, uh, we did a cup of each of those. Mm-hmm. And then we, um, we, we added some aromatics. And the aromatics, the spices that we used are star anise, fennel seed, whole allspice, and uh, coriander seed. And a little bit and of ginger, all, right? And a little bit of ginger, yes. We, we added ground ginger in at the end. So those, those whole spices we toasted off uh, just over low to medium heat, and we toasted them off until it was really aromatic, and trust me, you'll know when you do it. It will smell up your entire house, and you'll love me for it. So we take <laughs> all those spices, and we put them through a spice grinder. Uh, we blend that up into a powder, and then we mix that. We added that to the coffee, sugar, salt, and then a little bit of ground ginger as a back note in there. We cut the pork into equal-sized chunks, just probably, you know, four-ounce chunks, and we covered the entire outside of it. We just rubbed the pork with all the spices as much as you can get on the outside of it. Then we uh, sear it off in a pan. We want to get it nice and brown on all sides, and 
again, you're going to get all those flavors and aromas in your house and uh, added with the pork, which always smells good. Yeah, this starts to permeate the shirt you're wearing at this point, and then you smell good with it, and that's the best part. And don't be afraid, because when I watched you make it, Chef, that oil was pretty smoking hot. You do get a great sear on the pork, while at the same time, you really crust that pork with the flavor of the rub, and it too begins to permeate the meat. And it gets a dark, gorgeous exterior color, that then is going to cook even further into the meat when you braise. Right, and you want that, and you want that color to carry on to your final product. So you do, you do sear it. You get a nice hard sear on it, and you want that, want the spices to stick to the pork so it's not completely falling off while you're braising it, and for it to really permeate the meat. It does work out really well that way. Mm-hmm. You get a nice dark brown sear on the outside. After we sear off the pork, we set that aside. And in the same pan, we add in some fennel and onion. And we, we brown the fennel and onion in there for just a little bit, just until golden brown and, and cooked. And then we add in cola. So you can use any of your favorite brands of cola. We add that in and we cook it and reduce it by half. So we want to kind of cook some of the water out of it, leave the remaining cola flavors everything in there, that sticky, sweet flavor that mm. passes on mm. to your, your final product. So good. I want you to mention, if you would, the kind of cola that you use, because I think that it's a really interesting aspect of the soda world, as we hear so much controversy on the news about the banning of sugar sodas. You're using an agave-based cola, right? Yes. We use an agave-based cola called Ugave. Ugave. And, um, it's a great product, and it's actually uh, it's caffeine-free Tastes tastes very similar to your other colas that are out on the market. Mm-hmm. You could use you know, any cola here, though, right? You could use yeah. You can use any cola. Cola that's, that's root what I'm beer. Saying. They do taste very similar. Yeah. You could use root beer. Root beer would be really good in this recipe. Mm. I might have to try that. So once you cook out the cola, there's another secret then we, ingredient. Then we add brown ale. Yeah. In in this case, we use one from uh, LA's own brewery, Golden Road. We use one called Gitta. Get up off of that brown. We take that and add it into your reduced cola, and then we return the pork to the pan. At that point, we bring it up to a boil, reduce it to a simmer, cover it tightly with a lid or with some foil, and then uh, either leave it over low to moderate heat on your stovetop, or you can put it into a 350-degree oven. Let that cook for about three hours, and again, those aromas are just going to be going all over the place in your house. So crazy good. It still has to be pulled apart. There's still some meaty texture to the pork. Yeah, and by the way, when Chef says pulled apart, he means with two forks or spoons. We're not talking ever picking up a knife anywhere no. around this pork shoulder. I mean, it it's fall apart good, but it still does have a toothsome bite to it. So it, it's not mushy. I like the three-hour mark as well. Once you take the pork out of the braising liquid after that three-hour point, you then continue to reduce the braising liquid till it coats about the back of a spoon, right? Yes, I usually I, I'll strain out uh, strain out just the liquid and uh, the fennel and the fennel and onions can be thrown away. Then I reduce the liquid that's left there. It's going to reduce down until until it gets to a thickness that can coat the back of a spoon. You want a nice glaze, and by that I mean you could take a pastry brush and just paint it over the meat and 
get it to coat the meat really nicely. Yeah. You can use that. You can spoon it over the top of it. You can brush it over the top of it. It doesn't really matter. Just use it as a sauce. And Yeah, you and could put it, a uh, straw in it, really. But <laughs> better yet, you could it. spoon the sauce over the pork on a slider, on a taco. Chef makes some pickled red onions in a tortilla with the pork. An avocado salsa works beautifully here. I've uh, seen him do it just about every way. You can put together an entree ooh, with coleslaw too. I don't care how you serve it. Oh yeah, you just want to make it. The recipe's posted at chefjamie.com. It's Chef Greg Daniels' cola-glazed pork shoulder, and you heard it here first. This is far beyond bar food. This is a culinary experience. You'll find Greg at Haven Gastro Pub in Old Town Orange and in Pasadena, and you'll find perfect pork dishes all across the menu. Chef, we look forward to seeing you soon, and I can't thank you enough for sharing this truly killer recipe. Thanks, Jamie. Have a great day. It was a pleasure. Thank you. We'll certainly have a great day with cola-glazed pork shoulder on the menu. Chef Jamie Gwen along with Lana. Be right back. Welcome to the second hour of delicious conversation with Chef Jamie Gwynn. Dish with celebrity chefs, cookbook authors, and food experts, and gain inspirational ideas. You'll learn kitchen wisdom, wine education, and culinary trends, and eat and drink like you've never done before. Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwynn starts now. It's delicious, it's divine, it's food and wine. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio along with Lana as the delicious conversation continues. Hungry girl Lisa Lillian has made a career of helping consumers make really smart choices. She shares her sassy, guilt-free food advice as the author of six best-selling books, the founder of HungryGirl.com, and the host of the popular TV show on the Food Network and Cooking Channel. Lisa, we're excited to have you on our show for the first time. Welcome. Thank you so much, Jamie. Good to be here. A pleasure. Okay, one of your most popular titled books is Hungry Girl Supermarket Survival, Lisa. And we talk a lot about shopping on this show. What do you think is the greatest challenge we face in the supermarket today? I feel like a lot of people are just hit with so many mixed messages at supermarkets. And a lot of the labeling is confusing and misleading. So I always tell people to read labels carefully, turn those packages around, and see how many servings are in that item that looks like it's one serving but may actually be two and a half servings. Hmm. So I I just find deceptive labeling the most frustrating thing at the supermarket. I think that's very smart. I think in today's age as a professional chef, I'm always recommending the fact that we want to eat cleaner and leaner and healthier. And when you turn that label around and you look at the serving size, I too want to see if I can't pronounce an ingredient, I'm planning not to buy it. Or if it has ingredients that I know I need to stay away from, I think it's really important to turn the jar around. Yeah, I do. I do. That's obviously another issue too, the actual ingredients in foods. I mean, I think people just need help at the supermarket. In general, that's what Hungry Girl does. Like, that's what my brand does. It's a realistic approach to eating because not everybody can be perfect all the time. I think it would be fantastic if we could all be clean eaters and eat only natural and organic foods. And I think people need to eat more of those things without a doubt. Um, But the reality is people are shopping at the markets and they're looking for better choices right there on the shelves. And I think this book is really helpful for that. And I agree. Uh, Give us your perspective on snacking, because I'm a grazer, and it can be a tough habit to break, and it's one of the topics that you talk about often. 
Yeah, I talk about it all the time, and I am also, I'm a big snacker. I eat many times throughout the day. But for me, snacking is about finding things that are satisfying, and I'm most satisfied by protein. So these days, my, my go-to snack is actually tuna. I go for those Star Kiss tuna pouches that have, like, the single-serving pouches where it's one serving of tuna. It has 100 calories or less. You can just rip it open. No cans, no draining. You can stick a fork in there or just throw it over a salad throw it on some crackers. I think that's a great snack for not a lot of calories. And I also love Fuji apples. That's one of my go-to snacks. I eat an apple every day. I love 100-calorie packs of almonds. I keep those in my purse. So if I'm out and about and on the go and I get really hungry, I don't make a bad choice and go to a drive-thru. So snacking is important, and it's about being prepared. The Boy Scouts were right. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yes, they were. And I have a bag of snacks in my trunk. If I come from tennis and I'm starving, um, I'll find a pack of seaweed or I believe in those 100-calorie snacks as well. They definitely satiate my salty and sweet tooth. And I, yes. I like... Oh, I love... And by the way, yes. that seaweed is phenomenal. I love it. Isn't it fabulous? I learned that. I like the sesame kind. I, I learned that trick from a girlfriend of mine whose kids eat seaweed. She carries it around in her purse. Her young son came home one day and said, Mommy, can you buy seaweed at the market? And she said, Pardon me? And he said, Well, everyone at school has it. So it's definitely becoming a trend, and we know it's a healthy snack. Lana, you yeah, love that's, the. That's so LA. It, it is. <laughs> we love the wasabi flavor as well. Uh, yeah, that's it's a little hot, but I I like the, the sesame. But they're both they're really good. It's clever and crunchy. It hits all the same buttons that you want from like potato chips without getting all the calories and fat. Exactly. What are some of the other newest shopping trends you're seeing? Well, I'm still seeing, thank goodness, a lot of fiber in foods, which I think is a great thing. And as I was saying about those pre-portioned um, tuna pouches, there's a lot of pre-packaged single-serving foods, which I think is a great trend because it helps show people what an actual serving size is, and that's an important thing. And also another trend I love, flat 100-calorie breads and bagels and rolls, because I feel like people tend to eat too many calories with the bread when they're making sandwiches. And for me, it's perfect if I can have a flat bread that's loaded with fiber that has about 100 calories. I'm in the same boat as you are. I can actually... uh indulge in a piece of bread in the morning in the hundred calorie bags and feel satiated, but still get my carb intake that I need. And I really don't feel guilty about it. It's enough to get my brain moving, but it's not so much that I feel sluggish afterward. Yep. It's perfect. Yeah. I think it's a a great trick too. Um, Give us some guilt-free meal ideas from your arsenal, please. What's for dinner tonight? Well, Boy, that's a good question. Tonight I might go out for sushi, but if I were going to cook at home, one of my favorite things to do is I take like a big bag of broccoli coleslaw and then I sort of stir fry it and I use either a little bit of olive oil or just some, you know, nonstick cooking spray and I throw some chicken in there and some uh, onions and a little bit of like a low-fat marinara sauce. And to me, that's like a pasta swap without any noodles. And it's a gigantic serving size of, of mostly veggies with some lean protein. It's a, it's, a, it's a great option. And if I don't even want to cook at all, again, I go back to those tuna packets. They're great. I make the best salads out of them. Again, I can use broccoli coleslaw. I chop up a Fuji apple. I throw in a pouch of that tuna. And I don't even use dressing. You don't really even need to. The sweetness of the apple really makes it great. Really smart. It's sort of like the new niçoise, right? You can open the portion control packet of tuna and even throw in a hard-boiled egg, some olives. Exactly. You could make it French. Uh-huh. You could make some it olives. Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. Perfect. 
Love that. So good. And you know, they also make the pre the prepackaged sandwich ready tuna salad, which can uh, complete home run because tuna salad, if you buy it at the deli, it's loaded with fat and calories. It has more fat and calories than a lot of the, like the beefy options. And Starkist makes the sandwich ready tuna in single servings as well. For they either have 90 or 100 calories depending on the tuna. They have water chestnuts in there for a little crunch. It's a really great, amazing, you know, one-stop shop item. I love it. I love it too. I like this idea of convenience when it comes to shopping today. Lisa, give us some tips because you talk about the middle aisles of the grocery store very often on your show. And by the way, if you've just tuned in, you're late. We're talking with Hungry Girl Lisa Lillian. How is it that you recommend that we navigate the supermarket? Well, I think that people are often scared to go into the middle aisles, but you don't need to be. When people hear messages about them, you know, they should only be eating produce and things that they find on the perimeter of the store, some people tune that out because it's not reality for them. So this book has a lot of information about what you do when you go into those center aisles. Like if you want crunchy snacks, if you're looking for chips, there are better options for your whole family. You don't need to buy the full fat baked, you know, kettle or potato chips. You can find reduced fat options. I love pop chips. That's a, a kid favorite too. And they don't even realize they're doing something or eating something that's better or low in fat and calories. But it's all about reading the labels and looking at the bags and getting, you know, making smarter choices. Knowledge is power. I was an early on pop chip lover, and I agree with you, knowledge is power, especially when it comes to pop chips. That is the closest to a potato chip. And I'm a barbecue chip kind of girl, and there is nothing better than that crunch. Um, Leave us with a couple of more ideas in the heat of summer, Lisa, for your best recipes using those uh, quick lean proteins, please. Well, boy, I mean, I'm going to go back to that tuna again, but I just make all kinds of salads out of it. And I love this one thing I do. I call it I call it a meltless tuna melt. I take a packet of that tuna. I like to use the albacore, and then I mix a wedge of laughing cow cheese in there. So it's not hot, and, but it's soft enough, and it melts it, and it makes your tuna so creamy and amazing. And then I put that on cucumber slices. It's out of this world. It sounds fabulous. I love these guilt-free ideas. Yeah, great for summer, definitely. And uh, we'll keep you in mind as we eat all throughout the summer. If you're looking for a survival guide, this one is it. The Hungry Girl's newest ultimate resource for grocery store survival. You can find your supermarket survival book from The Hungry Girl online at Amazon.com. Better yet, go to her website, sign up for her newsletter. Be one of the six million that follow this sassy, guilt-free food lover. You call yourself food obsessed, Lisa, which means you and I can definitely be friends. <laughs> You're my new BFF, Jamie. There you go. Uh, we'll look forward to seeing you more on the Food Network and the Cooking Channel. Thank you. She's Thank at hungrygirl.com. Thank you, Lisa. As the delicious conversation continues, that made me want to grab a snack. So come on back. There's more fabulous food in your radio right after this. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen, along with Lana in your radio, sharing our outlook on the food world with you every Sunday. There are a wealth of tastes out there. In Paris, all of them are extraordinary, as is this woman. We love when Patricia Wells joins us. Uh, The journalist, author, and teacher is gracing us with her love of Paris in a new app called The Food Lover's Guide to Paris, the most authoritative guide to eating well in the city of light. 
It is an incredible guide to truly experiencing Paris at its best from one who knows it best. And Patricia, we're always delighted when you join us. So welcome back to the show. Jamie, thank you so much. I love being with Hmm. you. How nice. Thank you. I remember last we spoke about salads as a meal. Right. And we love the success of your 12th book, but you've continued to grow your knowledge and empire into a very tech-savvy offering now. And the app is terrific. We've been perusing it as if we were leaving for Paris tomorrow. Oh, well, I wish. I think you should. <laughs> yes, you we should. do too. <laughs> Tell everyone about it, please. Well, it's very interesting because people always stop me on the streets and say, when are you going to update the Food Lovers Guide to Paris? And I would say never, just because... You know, I had done four editions, and the last one was updated in 99, the book. And it just seemed, I've done that, you know. And then one day, about a year and a half ago, I walked into the apartment, and my husband said, I know what you should do. You should do the Food Lover's Guide to Paris as an app. And it was like, of course, it was made to be an app. Yes. And so I just said yes, and we just started researching and doing all the things you need to do, finding a designer, finding a developer, and so on and so forth. And I have to say, it's been an exhilarating experience. It's very different from doing a book because you're doing everything, you know, the design, the promotion, you know, everything. But in many ways, it was seamless. It was great fun to re-research everything. And we are going to be bringing it out as a book, not tomorrow, but quite soon. Well, congratulations. Well deserved. And the book will have recipes and so on. But the app, I think, is it's, it's wonderful to be able to, you know, shoot your own pictures and sure. uh, everything was just like do it yourself and learning a learning curve I think it's very progressive too Patricia one of the things that I love about my iPad and I know Lana and I talk about this a lot is how very mobile it has made us by being able to bring the wealth of information and knowledge that we want to carry with us mm-hmm. in our purse or briefcase or backpack and right, right. what's genius about your app I feel is that you have a very discriminating palette and that is yours Patricia that sort of follows you through Paris. There's something wonderful about the privilege we have of being able to write to you and say, oh, we're, you know, visiting Paris or Provence. Where should we go? And you make us a list. But being able to take the map along. And one of the things you love, Lana, is that the map is mm-hmm. downloadable with out needing to be online. So you upload the map and all of these pinpoints of where you want to go prior to your trip. And then you still have Patricia with you, but you don't need a connection while you're standing next to the Eiffel Tower. Right, exactly. <laughs> or, you know, in either cafes or hotels, you can be connected too. So it's, it's pretty easy these days. It's pretty fabulous. Let's talk about some of your personal picks because there's a section in the app where you talk about your top places to go. And so we chose a few that we aspire to visit on our next trip. Tell us about Bistro Paul. Paul Bear. Yes, Paul Bear. Well, I think I'd say in there if I came back, my next life as a bistro, it would be Bistro Paul Bear. It's such a sweet, authentic bistro. But what I love about it, aside from just being, you know, very cute and the owner just pays attention to every little detail, every little sign, every little chair. But the food is total classic bistro, but very modern in the same way. I'm in the sense that it's just very fresh and not the same old menu all the time. And the, the place is always bustling with, you know, locals. There, It's over in the 11th, so it's not like in the center center. It just has this great feel. You feel 
the kind of place that you feel as though you're in the right place at the right time. Right, like the quintessential French bistro, as you talk about. And I love that it's so seasonally focused as well. Slim asparagus in spring, you say, and I quote you, all manner of wild mushrooms and game in the autumn. The wonderful winter black truffle come December. And the classic version of steak frites. And on the menu for you, Mom, Sol Meunier. Of course. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) And it is uh, Bistro Paul Bert, it's P-A-U-L, the gentleman's name, and Bert, B-E-R-T, right? And that's the street it's on, right, in the 11th. And then take us next to a chocolatier that I was so delighted was a new name to us, Patricia, because we thought we had covered the gamut of chocolate last time we were in Paris. Jacques Genin, it's G-E-N-I-N, right? Right, he's amazing. The place is amazing. Everything you taste there is Amazing. He's on Rue de Turenne in yes. the Marais. The shop is super modern, ultra modern, but it's not just his chocolates, it's all of his pastries. In fact, I mean, his lemon tart is like the best of the best. Mm. And <laughs> I mean, a lot of these things are, are made to order. I mean, they make it in front of you. And right across the street from him is a, is a wonderful new baker. It's called 134 RDT, Rue de Turenne. And they have everything. They have chocolate bread. I was thinking about it today. They have a chocolate bread. They have all these old kind of German rich, you know, real hearty breads. Uh, It's just a fabulous place. Wow. I, you know, I love that you have a personal guide in this new app for your next visit to Paris. If you've just tuned in, good morning. You're late. Patricia Wells <laughs> is joining us. She has just released the Food Lover's Guide to Paris in an app for your iPhone, your iPad, uh, or any mobile device that you are able to carry with you the most authoritative, authoritative guide, rather, to eating well in the city of light now. There is one name that is synonymous with bread, Patricia, in Paris. And I was so interested to read that per your mention of, is it pronounced Poilane? Poilane. P-O-I-L-A-N-E, which is actually sold here at Bristol Farms at our favorite supermarket, Mm -hmm. right? But 3% of the population in Paris actually indulges in Poilane bread daily. Isn't that amazing? That's an incredible number. It's totally amazing. Well, you know, they have two bakeries in Paris. And then um, Lionel, bless his soul, before he died, he um, he created what they call the manufacturer, where they have 24 ovens going 24 hours a day. And every bread is made by hand. It's all wood-fired oven. It's amazing what they do. It's quite spectacular, too, that I think they can transport the flavor here and to us. Certainly not as good as walking into the bakery, but a taste of what is to come on your next trip to Paris. Patricia, can we meet you at Gaioza Bar? I love that you highlight not only the greatest French bistros and those things that make Paris Paris, but the fact that you do have a lot of inclusion of other ethnic fusion styles well, more of food. And more, I think the Gaios bar is incredible. There's wonderful, incredible Japanese dumplings. And there's more and more interesting Italian places. And of course, there's always the Asian spots that are, are fantastic. There's a real good breadth of, there's even Lebanese, Moroccan. Mm-hmm. So I've included, you know, a lot of variety for people. And, you know, not just restaurants, but of course, as, as in the Food Lover's Guide to Paris, the book, markets, specialty shops, bakeries, pastries. Um, so on. And the markets is just some of my favorites, too. And it's, it's fun to be able to 
share photos. And you know what? It's, it's really great, too, as an author. I mean, I can... I have the ability, because our database is, is very simple and easy to use, that I can come back from a, a meal and change the photo and change the um, the commentary, and when you update your, your app, you've got it. Yes, and that's what's amazing, right, is that in book form, in paper form, we you're love stuck. the resource. But you're right, you're stuck. Something new opens. You're stuck. How do we know? Well, (laughs) now you will direct from Patricia Wells. You can discover more than 350 of the city's ultimate culinary destinations, constantly updated, tested by Patricia and her team. What a tough job, Patricia. Just so (laughs) difficult. (laughs) Really, I must say. We're so jealous. Yes. And and we're always very delighted and honored when you share your knowledge with us. Patricia Wells, author and former New York Times food writer, global food critic for the International Herald Tribune, living in France since 1980, running her popular cooking school at home with Patricia Wells in Paris and Provence, and now in your back pocket in her new app called The Food Lover's (laughs) Guide to Paris, the most authoritative guide to eating well in the city of light. Patricia, we're still calling on you directly just because we have that luxurious benefit, um, but we will carry the app next time we're in Paris and we'll okay, let you, you know still call, you can still call me directly thank you but <laughs> we'll let you know before we arrive so. yes congratulations uh, it's a great new resource Jamie thank you so much yes of course we can wish you continued success and we hope to see you soon as the delicious conversation continues plan your trip now Alana can you imagine mm. Paris tomorrow sounds good to me <sighs> soon soon <laughs> you're listening to KFWB News Talk 980 be right back <laughs> Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen, along with Lana in your radio. This is a cork report. We are trumpeting the virtues of Zinfandel and igniting a summer love affair with Zin. You know, pairing those wonderful flavors of barbecue with the spicy, fruity notes of Zinfandel takes grilling from sometimes routine to really remarkable. And we're delighted to have the winemaker for Rosenblum Winery with us live. John Kane is here. Good morning to you, John. Good morning. Well, okay, let's talk first about the history of Zin, because all other significant wine varieties have their reference points in Europe. But Zinfandel established its own tradition in California, and Rosenblum has been so much a part of that. Yes. uh, You know, as we know, Zinfandel kind of originated out of Croatia, which was kind of an odd spot for it. The reality of it is it was a hardy vine that could go through the harsh winters, had good pest resistance, and it's primarily one of California's uh, historical vines that you find out there. Generally, some of the older head prune, dry farm Zinfandel vineyards you find in Sonoma and Napa and up in the Sierra foothills and some in Paso Robles can date back to about 130 years old. I think it's really amazing that Zinfandel's become known as America's heritage wine. I mean, it's a classic all-American success story, this little-known grape that has achieved tremendous popularity. And you're growing on a good majority of that very delicious Zinfandel acreage. So if you would, tell us about your vines. Um, So Rosenblum is uh, essentially a 100% contract winery. We don't own any vineyards, which really gives us the ability to go out and source and seek out these old vine vineyards that we find all over California. We uh, work with one vineyard called the Maggie's Reserve. That's out of Sonoma Valley. That vineyard dates about 120 years old. Dry farm, head prune, just really an old-style vineyard. And it really kind of just produces enough fruit that the vineyard really wants to produce. There's not much that we can do on that. There's another vineyard we work with called the Monte Rosso Vineyard out of the Sonoma Valley, 
which is essentially the uh, Mount Veter side on the Sonoma side. So you have Mount Veter and, and Napa. On the other side is where the Monte Rosso is planted. That vineyard dates back probably to about 1880. Mm. Beautiful vineyard, red volcanic soil. And then uh, we have a vineyard down in Paso Robles, which is called the Richard Surrett Vineyard. And his front block of his house dates, I think it was planted right about 1950. So, you know, the variants of these old vineyards all over California that we work with have different date times, but really just shows you how unique and how hardy Zinfandel is to California. And, you know, why it's a good thing a lot of people didn't tear them out. You know, I guess we can thank White Zen for keeping the old head prunes in place to where the red Zen could come back and start being made from those vineyards. Definitely so. I, I think it's quite incredible. You produce more than 25 different Zinfandels or Zin blends. And the characteristics that we usually anticipate for a Zin is usually uh, jammy or fruity flavors, plum, berry, fig, some say rhubarb. You might describe Zins as being spicy or peppery, uh, cloves or cinnamon, uh, detecting smoke or oak is natural, earthy tones in Zin. Those, by the way, are all the reasons I love Zin. And Zin tends to be big and bold, and it definitely stands up to grilling. And I think it's the ultimate summer food-friendly wine. Do you agree? Yes, I do. Uh, You know, Zinfandel is just really one of those grapes that expresses itself really well, doesn't need a lot of aging in the bottle. Um, Generally, when you get in the colder climates, mountainside vineyards, you'll get that more spice, darker flavors. But when you get onto the valley floors and, and Sonoma Valley, you really get more of the red fruits and just the big, juicy style of Zins, you know. And Zins are fun to drink. They're alive. They have great acidity. The nose really comes out. The fruits, you know, you get the spices. Um, and I definitely really feel that that's why the wine, you know, it's kind of been a workhorse. It's really not an expensive wine out there in the market. But just what it offers for the price and the value, is it's one of the best deals in the market. I agree. I happen to have one of the best deals in the radio and food world, and that's because I can drink on the job, John. So Lana and I are going to taste some of these Zins. And uh, of the Rosenblum cellars, we have the Vintner's Cuvée in front of us. That's a non-vintage that you put out at, at about how much per bottle? I know it's a great value. I think it averages about $11 a bottle. Uh, the Vintner's Cuvée uh, signifies by the Roman numerals how long the winery's been in operation. So if you guys were probably tasting the 33, as we're probably maybe moving 33 to 34. Mm-hmm. But uh, the Vintner's Cuvée is really just a wine that we want to showcase that there's great vineyards all over California. That wine probably has about 12% teeth straw blended back into it to give it a little bit of body. But uh, it's really just our way to introduce people to the Rosaloom style, the fruit forward kind of soft and supple, and it's, it's a great wine for everyday drinking. I think it's a perfect table wine. I think this could be your summer house wine. Uh, Lana and I always talk about how I believe everyone should have a house wine for every season, and whether you have a fancy cellar or a coat closet, and that becomes your cellar. You buy up a case, and you know it's food-friendly, and you know it goes with your style of cooking, John, and then that becomes your go-to wine. And then everyone wants to come to your house because they know that they're going to be poured a consistently delicious glass. The Vintner's Cuvée 14 we're tasting has just beautiful raspberry. I get blackberry. I even get a little bit of cassis. Yeah, so we, uh, generally that bottle is uh, sourced out of the Lodi in the Paso Robles region. You know, Lodi, we kind of get more of the big red fruit. Mm. And then Lodi, we get a little more of that spiciness, a little bit of the darker fruits. But it's a, it's a great blend to put together. And, you know, for 11 bucks, you know, it's a great bottle of wine that you can enjoy every day. We all wish we could drink $100 bottles every night at dinner. But uh, I guess the reality is 
$10 bottles can offer just a great same as deal that we want for the 100 bucks, but it's for every day. You're not drinking $100 bottles every night, Joe? I try. <laughs> He's barrel tasting every night. Um, take us to the Maggie's Reserve. This is one of your blends that has received accolades year after year from the biggest publications in the wine trade. Uh, this Maggie's Reserve is a, a big, sweet, chocolatey wine. We're drinking the 2009, and if you don't mind, you talk and I'll drink. So the Maggie's Reserve is really a unique story and really kind of how mm. Rosenblum wow. really got their, you know, their, their cliché. So Maggie's Reserve Vineyard is planted in a essentially a housing subdivision of Sonoma Valley, a couple blocks off the Sonoma Square. Um, we were able to contract this vineyard because they wanted to tear it out to put more houses in. So we essentially contracted that vineyard. We pay someone to farm it for us. We found out the vineyard was right about 120 years old. And one of the special things of Maggie's Reserve to us was we noticed that there was white grapes interplanted in the Zin, which is Simeon. So till this day, and especially in the 2009, we take the Simeon whole cluster and we throw it into the Zinfandel fermentation, which really gives it more of the boost of the fruit and kind of that big, juicy mouthfeel of that Zin. Um, for us, it was a tragedy that someone wanted to tear out a 120-year-old vineyard because that's really California's history. Is you know you really don't find old vine cab or old vine syrah. You really only find old vines in California. So that Maggie's really just has, like I was talking earlier, just it's on the valley floor. It gets really good heat. It has that big red fruit, nice little chocolate in the back. You know, some good spice, but really just a classic Sonoma Valley zin. Mm. Oh, it tastes very jammy. Yes. Sort of a spicy finish. And and very quintessential Zinfandel. If you want to taste the most delicious Zinfandels, you go to Rosenblum Cellars. And if you just tuned in, good morning. We're drinking. You're late. It's a party. Chef Jamie went along with Lana, winemaker of Rosenblum Cellars, with us, John Kane. John, the history of the Zin grape, um, very different in different regions, but the soil, the terroir, has so much to do with the quality of the grape and the composition of the flavor profile as it applies to every varietal. Um, But what is your favorite? I know it's like asking your favorite child. What is your favorite Zin or Zin blend you're producing now from that, you know, soil composition that you love? So I I would say the the one that we're really most excited about at the moment is the Rockpile Road Zinfandel. Rockpile just got its ABA back in 2002, so I guess it's been 10 years it's one of the newer AVAs we have in Sonoma County, and it's an elevation AVA. You have to be above 1,200 feet to be planned or to be considered in the Rockpile AVA. So this is a sub-appellation of Dry Creek Valley, and it's the mountain range up above Lake Sonoma. And the red volcanic soil up there just really lends itself to dark fruit, adds a lot of spice to the zen. In mountainside zen like that, it, you kind of get what we call deprivation irrigation, where the soil drains so well that the vine always kind of feels like it's maybe not going to make it to the next year and really produces just really nice, concentrated fruit for us. And that's kind of what we've seen in a lot of the old vines and what you're really tasting in that Maggie's Reserve also. Very cool. I, I love the idea of Zinfandel and the production of it, where it started, where it's come to, uh, where you've brought it to, and the fact that it is the heat of summer. We are celebrating the start of summer just a couple of days ago. So fire up your barbecue and we'll take a quick break. When we come back, the ultimate food pairings for Rosenblum Cellars Zinfandel and what you can pair with Zin this summer, a super special spicy five pepper paste for beef 
right after this. Don't go away. Chef Jamie Gwen along with Lana. You're listening to KFWB News Talk 980. The culinary landscape is ever evolving and knowing the perfect pairings and mastering food and wine so much a part of this great food world that we live in. Zin fanatics, yes, that's what we call Zinfandel lovers, drink up. We're dishing with John Kane. He is the winemaker for Rosenblum Cellars. I love that blog, Lana, that's on the Rosenblum Cellars website. Slog. Oh, pardon me. It's, it's called a slog. That is really fun. There are some amazing Zinfandel fanatics out there, John. You have quite a following. And I think all of them are grilling this summer because uh, I think that there's something to be said for big, jammy, Zintastic Zinfandel's perfect pairing for grilled foods. Yeah. You know, uh, for us, Zinfandel definitely lives in that life of, uh, you know, the three things in, in, in food and wine is some people like spice, some people like sweetness, and then some people like a little bit of that salt that kind of helps with the food. Well, in Zinfandel, you get both sides. You can have a nice spicy zin, or you can have a nice kind of a sweeter, maybe more open fruits forward style zin, but they definitely some of the best wine to go with barbecue. For sure. And anything grilled. I mean, whether you're grilling even on a, a grill pan on top of your stove, if you love the flavor of smoke and you make a sweet, smoky barbecue sauce and you're wondering what the perfect complement is, whether it's uh, poultry or pork or beef, or even all those umami flavors that we just talked about recently with Barb Stuckey when we learned how to taste on the radio, Lana. Zinfandel and mushrooms, especially smoky mushrooms, John, off the grill. We make um, smoked mushrooms over a bed of greens with a spicy mustard vinaigrette as one of our signature summer salads for barbecues. And your Zin would go absolutely brilliantly. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, you know... uh for myself, you know, I always uh, kind of open the bottles in first and then kind of think about what we're going to barbecue. Um, definitely like, you know, the Richard Surrette Reserve or the Maggie's Reserve really goes nice with some spicy beef baby back ribs mm. or some, you know, more tri-tip and stuff like that. But Zen always works well with most barbecues. Not really if it's fish or if it's meat or if you want to do veggies. I think Zen really pairs well with them all. Yeah, I like your style. You open the bottle first and then you determine what you're going to eat. It, it kind of helps when you go that that way, you know. It's, it's a good, a good plan. Yeah, I like it. Um, in fact, your grill master, Sid, he created a couple of perfect pairings to pour the moment, as he calls it. And I like that. There is a recipe we've posted at chefjamie.com that was shared with us by you and Rosenblum Sellers, and it's a spicy five pepper paste for beef. And it really has big, bold, suck it to you flavor with ground peppercorns. It includes white pepper, cayenne pepper, jalapeno pepper. Then there's a little bit of honey just to tone down the heat and some hot pepper sauce rounding out those five peppers. And you make this blend, this paste, you spread it onto the beef and you can let it stand, the grill master says, for about 15 minutes or up to a couple of hours and then throw it on the grill. You've got really bold flavor. And I can imagine the sweetness of that strawberry jam of your Zinfandel just offsetting it beautifully. Yeah, it works out well. You know, uh, kind of barbecuing at Rosenblum came hand in hand. And I guess mm. we landed on it by default that there wasn't a lot of restaurants. And you generally can't go to restaurants when you're covered in grape skins and muck. So barbecuing <laughs> was our second way to really feed the troops and get everyone, you know, have a, have a good lunch. So what we ended up having was these evolution of sauces we were trying and how they paired well with the Zinfandels and 
a nice spicy uh, sauce like that really pairs well with something like the Mag's Reserve or Rockpile that offers a little more fruit, a little acid to kind of lift out that spice and, and tastes really well with the barbecue. Yeah, I, th- I think it's really impressive how consistent your Zinfandels have been, and we know that they are the perfect pairing to grilling season. So we look forward to every summer tasting the new Rosenblum releases. And there's something to be said about the fact that we're celebrating uh, the official opening weekend of grilling season. Uh, But for the years to come, or for this vintage in particular, tell us what your vines or how the grapes are growing right now for the coming blends you know for uh compared to the last couple of years where we had some of the coldest springs on record this spring and coming into summer has turned out to be perfect you know we're riding in between that 75 to 95 degree weather we're getting that nice pacific air conditioner as i call it cooling off the grapes at uh, night uh we just got through flowering so the fruit's starting to set the clusters you can start to see them on the vine kind of but this has turned out to be probably one of the best springs we've had on you know, probably for the last 10 years. So everyone's really excited about this vintage. Definitely think it's going to be a blockbuster, and hopefully it's going to be a lot warmer than it was in the last couple of years. Well, we're hoping for heat for you as well. Uh, something that I love about Rosenblum Cellars is that they have a an urban winery tasting room, and it's a ferry ride just across the bay from San Francisco. And you can go and you can taste a compliments to you, John, of many of the Yelp reviews. Your tasting panel in your wine rooms uh, are spoken of so highly from wine lovers that have just been totally taken by the experience of tasting your wines. And I think there's something to be said for that, a wine room that allows you to really understand the the winemaker, his goals, and the wines themselves. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to be in the industry, and it's, it's a pleasure to put smiles on people's faces. You know, uh, not too many jobs out there where people walk away happy with something that you provided. I think that's pretty cool. If you're planning for burgers this summer, Zinfandel. If you're making lamb kebabs, yeah, baby, that sweet, lovely, jammy, big, bold red is Zintastic. And you'll find some wonderful offerings from Rosenblum Cellars, uh, multiple vintages and some non-vintage as well. I'm going to spell Rosenblum for those that don't know it, R-O-S-E-N-B-L-U-M, Cellars. John Kane, the winemaker. John, we hope to... Uh, hopefully join you or have you join us at a barbecue sometime. We'll open a a great bottle of Maggie's Reserve and toast you. That'd be fantastic. Thank you for sharing your passion. Okay, you want to hear the perfect pairing for Zinfandel? An Oreo cookie. That's right. I think that there's nothing better than sweet dessert with a good glass of Zin. And Oreo cookie is actually inviting you to join the movement. This year, Oreo is inviting you to celebrate the kid inside because they're celebrating 100 years of making life a little less hectic, a little more carefree, they say. Set your inner kid loose, take a break, and go to their website. It's Oreo.com. Throughout 2012, they're trying to collect a million moments together of stories from kids and adults alike that have experienced an Oreo cookie. How do you eat your Oreo? Who do you remember dunking it with? It's a really uh, absolutely cool celebration. And don't we all have stories about our eating our Oreos? So uh, I know, but tell everyone, are you a twist and lick or a straight go for it crunch? A straight go for it crunch. Yeah, (laughs) I am too. Uh, Don't. 
dunked milk. Yeah. Ice cold milk. I'm certainly not one to savor, but definitely to enjoy. You can check out the Oreo celebration online. We'll have a link through from chefjamie.com. And thank you for sharing in our Sunday morning culinary playground. This is where food lovers unite, and we hope you'll join us every Sunday morning beginning at 8 a.m. for more delicious conversation and fabulous food. Coming up next Sunday, it's our 4th of July show, and we'll be celebrating with everything grand off the grill. Don't miss Chef Tom Hope of Taps and the Catch Restaurants with his best fish inspiration for grilling season. Also, pastry chef Abby Dodge with the ultimate summer desserts. You'll create some incredible cocktails, and we want to know, what are you drinking while you're grilling? Go to the website at chefjamie.com and send us an email live at chefjamie.com, the email address. You'll find us as well. You'll find me at Chef Jamie Gwen on Facebook and on Twitter. By the way, Tony Abu Ghanem, he is the modern mixologist. He's with us live next Sunday with Cocktail Inspiration. So it's a great show, and we hope that you'll meet us here. Don't miss that Bristol Farms Extraordinary Special, and look for Melissa's Produce, and stop by Paul Martin's for brunch. We'll meet you there, too. And we'll meet you here in your radio next Sunday when the delicious conversation continues. Chef Jamie Gwen, along with Lana, signing off. We hope you continue to eat well. The preceding program has been brought to you by Taste Bud Entertainment.